0: We are in week five, if I'm correct, of a sermon series called Every Square Inch, Every Square Inch, and it's the, uh, the title of this sermon series comes from a quote from a man named Abraham Kuyper, who um, was a theologian and a philosopher in Holland around um, the turn of the 20th century, and the reason that we're cho- choosing this, uh, this title for the series is because he had a quote at the founding of the Free University of Amsterdam, where he was the inaugural speaker, and he said this. He said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence. That means our minds, our hearts, our relationship, our work, all of the things that comprise our human experience. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine." The idea there is that when we surrender our hearts and our minds and our lives and our work and our relationship, when we give that back to God, then human flourishing occurs, right? God is honored. We are satisfied. The world grows when we contribute and give every square inch back to him. Today, we're going to be talking about how that is true for our hearts. But before we begin, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for the people in this room. Um, I just thank you that uh, they managed to uh, wake up after their alarm clocks went off, and they managed to make some food for themselves and to walk out into the cool fall air. Father and make it into this building today um, to be able to to be with your people um, and Father, we know that where your people are gathered together that you're there and so father it 's not just that we 're here with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Father. But we're here with you and father we're here with you because you invited us into this place and so father i pray that as you have invited us into this place to hear your word to sing your praises to be around your people father i pray that each of us would have a life-changing encounter with you the living god father i pray that as we think about all these elements of our humanity our hearts and our minds and our work father our relationships Father, I pray that we would indeed surrender each of those areas to you, Father, that we would climb up on uh, the autopsy table, that you would reveal to us where there is cancer and where there is sin and where there is rebellion, Father, and that you might lovingly and kindly remove it from us, Father, so that we can truly give every square inch of our humanity back to you, the rightful owner of our hearts and our minds and our lives. Father, we pray these things. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Taken from a Dr. Seuss book called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Some of you uh, read it when you were little children. Your parents read it to you. Maybe you've read it more recently. It's a children's story written by Theodore Dr. Seuss Geisel. It tells the story of this fellow right here, the Grinch. He's a grouchy, slouchy, solitary, miserable creature who attempts to ruin Christmas for the children of Whoville by stealing their Christmas gifts and their Christmas food. The Grinch, this guy right here, he hates Christmas. He lives alone up on this mountain except for his loyal dog, Max, if you guys remember Max. They reside together in a cave on top of Mount Crumpet, located north of the town of Whoville, home of the warm-hearted Who's. From his cave, the Grinch can hear the Christmas festivities. He can hear them celebrating. Continually annoyed, he devises a wicked scheme to steal their presents, their Christmas trees, and even their Christmas food, disguised as Santa Claus, and with Max dressed up as a reindeer, if you guys remember Max dressed up as a reindeer, the Grinch actually gets away with this devious plan. When his sleigh is full, Max, the little dog reindeer, pulls the sleigh up to the top of Mount Crumpet away from Whoville, where the Grinch then intends to dump everything into the abyss on the other side of the mountain, thus ruining Christmas for the people of Whoville. When dawn arrives... The Grinch expects to hear the people of Whoville grieving and mourning as they see their Christmas trees and lights and presents all gone. But much to his surprise, if you guys remember the story, he hears them singing a joyful Christmas song instead. He is bewildered, right? You remember him talking to Max and Max is hanging upside down. It dawns on him in his words that maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more than just presents and feasting. The Grinch then determines in his heart to return all of these presents back to the residence of Whoville. But at just that moment, if you guys remember, the sleigh begins to tip over the mountain and towards the abyss, and it almost falls until the Grinch, filled with miraculous strength, is able to pull the sleigh full of presents back from the brink of destruction. What happened? How did he do it? Seuss tells us. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say, that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then the true meaning of Christmas came through, and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches plus two. Thank you. It turns out that the source of the Grinch's newfound strength was a whole heart. His problem originally that his heart was too small, there was something wrong with it. The Bible is very, very clear that we have a heart problem as well. Today, we'll be looking at three different facets of our heart. First of all, we're going to look at the ontology of our heart. I'll get to that in a minute. We'll be looking at the problem of our heart. And then finally, we'll be looking at the solution of the heart. The ontology of the heart, the problem of the heart, the solution of the heart. Let's start with this ontology of the heart. Some of you know this. Some of you don't. But the word ontology is a fancy word for being. So when I say the ontology of the heart, what I'm really trying to get at is what is the heart? What is the human heart? And here, just to be clear, I'm not talking about that organ that resides within your chest that pumps blood throughout your body. The heart, as it is used in scripture and songs and movies and poetry, is a metaphor for the center of our being. We know that. We can't see it, we can't touch it, we can't even measure it, but we can definitely feel it. The heart is the engine of the human machine. It determines our desires, our direction, and ultimately it determines even our destination. In his article, The Revolutionary Christian Heart, Tim Keller describes the heart as follows. The heart, to English speakers, means the emotions. But the Bible also says our thinking comes from the heart, as well as our willing our plans and our decisions this confuses us until we realize the bible's view of human nature is revolutionary different than what you find in other human systems of thought the heart is used as a metaphor for the seat of our both most basic orientation our deepest commitments what we trust the most it is what we most love and hope in what we most treasure what cap- captures our imagination right he's right Jesus was constantly speaking of the heart in precisely these ways. Jesus said this. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus also said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart over And over and over again, Jesus is talking about the relationship of our heart to the actions that we enact, the things that we desire, the direction that our lives head. And if all of this is true of the human heart, then it is without a doubt of infinite importance. It really matters because your heart will determine what you love. And what you love will determine what you dream about. Your dreams will ultimately determine your choices, and your choices will determine your destination. Blaise Pascal once wrote the following. He said this, the heart has its reasons, which reason knows not. Let me say that one more time. The heart has its reasons, which reason knows not. Sometimes what is truest about us isn't even something that we are cognitively aware of. Pascal is correct. If we want to know why we do what we do, then we need to look no further than our heart. So the heart is the center of our being. I think the Bible makes that point. Pascal makes that point. Keller affirms that point. It's the motor that drives us. It's the compass that directs us. God made us that way on purpose. That's how he formed us to be. But there is a problem. That's the second point, the problem of our hearts. In college, I had a theology professor named Henry Krobendam. we actually ran into him a couple weeks ago um, up in Chattanooga. He used to be six foot eight, um, and now he's about six feet tall. He's been retired for quite some time now. But uh, Dr. Krobendam always sounded like the Count from Sesame Street. He's Dutch. And one of his most frequent sayings was, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. What he meant was that as a result of pollution entering the world through Adam and Eve, Our central processing units have a glitch. There's a virus within each of our hearts. One theological term that helps understand this glitch or this virus is the term total depravity, total depravity. Some of you guys have heard that phrase before. Some people misunderstand the term. They think it means that humans are as bad as they can be in every area of their humanity all the time. And if that were true, then there would be very little good in the world at all. Life would always be some form of Nazi Germany. Instead, total depravity means, instead, that every aspect of our humanity has been impacted and polluted by sin. Let me say that one more time. Total depravity means that every aspect of our humanity has been impacted and polluted by sin. There's no part of us that isn't corrupted, polluted, and touched by sinfulness and brokenness. Practically, this means that there's no part of us that's untouched by sin. Relationally, we're broken right if you don't think you're broken relationally then you need to do some uh some deep soul searching intellectually we're broken if you don't think you're intellectually broken then you need a little bit of humility and you need a conversation with some of the philosophers of our past psychologically we're broken we have lots of counselors in our church if you don't think you're broken psychologically that's surely evidence that you are broken psychologically. Come talk to me afterwards. The brokenness goes on and on and on. In fact, as human beings, we are like a 1985 Mercedes. I don't know how many of you guys were alive in 1985. But in 1985, when a 1985 Mercedes rolled off the line, it was perfect. Or for my friends that speak German, it was Bundes. And, uh, and what that means is it just couldn't have been better. But I don't know if you've seen in 1985 a Mercedes recently that wasn't kept in a warehouse or stored in a garage, but now all those years later, I guarantee you that sunroof leaks, the paint is faded, and it is not a great idea to drive it on the highway. Trust me. Our hearts are very much like that Mercedes. Our humanity is like that Mercedes. We were created to be perfect in the image of God, but now we are broken, corrupted, polluted by sin. Throughout the Bible, God addresses the brokenness of our hearts. You know that. It's really from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through the end in Revelation. And really, we find that there are at least two dispensations of our heart that some of us are familiar with. The first, heartbrokenness exists before we become Christians. Isaiah 29 says this, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me we see that sort of status of Adam and Eve in the garden where they're fleeing from God they're they're actually actively trying to get away from him in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it apart from God our hearts are not trustworthy Ezekiel 36 carries on that idea saying that apart from God we have a heart of stone it's dead to God Romans 1 says that apart from God, our hearts were darkened. Abby read a passage this morning that talked about God's light shining in our hearts. In Romans 2, we're told that some people have a hard and impenitent heart. Many of you in this room very clearly remember your heart before you were a Christian. You can remember it, right? It was a cold heart. It was a dead heart. It was all those things, dead, cold, hard, and utterly selfish right? That's one dispensation of the human heart. But there are others of us in this room who've experienced a new heart, thank goodness. After we become Christians, our hearts are changed, and that's good news. But it's clear that even with these new hearts, there's still something wrong. Paul addresses this brokenness of heart in Romans 7. He says this, "'For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate.'" For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is after God, Jesus, has met him on the Damascus Road. He's been given a new heart. He's been given a new record. He's been given a new life, but there's still something wrong. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Intuitively and experientially, we understand Paul all too well. Our hearts are engaged in an ongoing battle. One moment we long for that which is good and noble and pure, and the very next moment we're overwhelmed with longing for something ignoble. Many of us often join in with Paul saying, "Wretched." man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death so our hearts were created good we were created in god's image but then sin entered in and our hearts became corrupt and even after god gives us a new heart there's still an ongoing battle within us so the next question is what is the cure that's the final point the truth is there's no simple answer to this question what's the cure for our hearts St. Augustine framed the discussion by using some famous Latin phrases that some of you may be familiar with. Before the fall, Augustine said that man was passe non pecare, passe non pecare. That is, man had the ability to sin, but also the ability not to sin. And then after the fall, Augustine defines the human condition as non passe non pecare. In other words, it's not possible not to sin. It's not possible not to sin. Everything we do is sin. And then what he says next is, he says, when we get to heaven, we'll no longer have passe pecare, the ability to sin, and we'll no longer have non passe non pecare, not possible not to sin. Augustine says, in heaven, we'll only have the status of non passe pecare, which means not possible to sin. All right, It's only in the new heavens and the new earth that we will actually be in a position where we are unable to sin. I wish I lived in that state now. Right. No more bojangles, right? No more staying up late at night when I know I should go to bed. No more saying things that I shouldn't say, complaining about things I shouldn't complain about. You know, no more creating idols of the good things that God has placed in my life. God's answer to this dilemma for our broken hearts is that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be unable to sin. We will only desire that which is good. Our hearts will be fully transformed formed incorruptibly into the hearts that God created us to have. That is really, really good news. The question, however, is what do we do for the next 50 years or 60 years or 80 years or 10 years? Do we just hold on till then? Is God at work in our hearts at all? Is there anything we can do? The answers to those questions are no, we don't have to just hold on. We shouldn't do that. And yes, God is at work in our hearts. And yes, there are things we can do. First of all, God gives us a very clear target for our hearts. In Deuteronomy 6, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites the following objective. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart we are created to love God above all else. Let me say that one more time. We were created to love God above all else. In his confessions, St. Augustine affirms this when he writes the following. He says this, "'Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, "'and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee.'" The human heart, uncorrupted by sin, is created to find its ultimate satisfaction in God. Like trees grow towards the sun, our hearts are supposed to bend towards our heavenly Father. In our sinful state, however, our broken hearts bend instead towards good, God-given things that we turn then into ultimate things, things like family work and romantic love. And to our surprise, when we worship those things or turn our hearts toward them as our ultimate good, we end up unfulfilled and unsatisfied and usually we blame those things right we blame our wife we blame our kids we blame our job we blame our lack of physical beauty whatever the case may be but we're unfulfilled and unsatisfied it's not their fault it's that we're worshiping the wrong thing in augustine's words our hearts remain restless we're looking for that thing where do our hearts land unless god is finally our deepest affection the problem of course is that even if we know where our heart should be directed upon god we still fail over and over and over again and so god because he loves us he enters in in galatians 4 paul tells the galatian church about god's plan to rescue and to reorient their hearts verse 4 says this but when the set time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, and I can fill in the blanks here and say, and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, okay? So your hearts weren't pursuing him. They weren't directed at him. And so God spent this, sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who now calls out, "'Abba, Father,' you return to God, you cry out to him, "'so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. "'And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. "'God's plan was to send his son to redeem us "'so that we might, in his words, receive adoption. "'And now, because you are God's children, "'God has sent the Holy Spirit into your heart.'" The Holy Spirit then from within your heart calls out to God, Abba, Father. How does God deal with our broken hearts? He gives us a new identity. We're adopted children. We are now in the family of God. And so we have a new status, but we also have a new experience. Hearts that are empowered to cry out to God as little children cry out to their parents. The Holy Spirit is in the process of bending your heart back towards God, towards its original destination. There's so much more to say about this. In fact, a book could be written. I'm sure books have been written about this, Uh, especially in light of what we can do, what we can do our part in this. David tells us in Psalm 139 that we should ask God to reveal where our hearts are polluted. He says this, "'Search me, O God, and know my heart. "'Try me and know my thoughts, "'and see if there be any grievous way in me, "'and lead me in the way everlasting.'" And so part of what David is saying here is he's saying, God, show me where my heart is impure. Show me where my heart is corrupt and then lead me into a way that isn't corrupt, that isn't polluted. Take my heart where it needs to be. But he basically says, turn to God and cry out to him that he would do that in your heart, in your life. We're told to guard our hearts. That's what Proverbs 4.23 says. It says this, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Right part of what's embedded in this is that your heart is under attack. There is an evil one who wants to lead you astray, to darken your heart. There are real things that will corrupt and pollute even your new heart, and so you must guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. It gives water to those people in your domain. They drink from it, and it can be pure water or it can be polluted water. In Philippians Paul reminds us that everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's so many weapons at our disposal, but as always, the most important thing we can do is to look at Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. He says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, not on our ability, not on our inability, not on our past sin, not on our present sin, not on other people. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that's written your story. He's the one that's perfecting your very, very imperfect faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That joy was seeing that you would be reconciled to him and to his father, and that you would indeed be given a heart that is no longer able to sin, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That image of him sitting down on the right hand of the throne of God means that his work is accomplished, it's done. He rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and that God said, great job, take a seat, you're done. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so we look at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, so that we will not lose